the National Archives podcast series. Magna Carta, what's so great about the Charter? A panel discussion with Dr. Sophie Ambler, Nicholas Vincent, Louise Wilkinson, Paul Brand, David Crook and David Carpenter. This talk was recorded on the 23rd of June 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Those who don't know me, I'm Jeff James. I'm the Chief Executive and Keeper of the National Archives. Or as I've discussed with a couple of people, I'm one of the next people to end up on that wall outside, hopefully with less whiskers, though. Um, it's a really great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to participate in this fascinating debate about the importance of Magna Carta. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm sure you are. As you all know, this year is the 800th anniversary of the sealing of Magna Carta, an event to commemorate it are taking place across the country. Uh, we at the National Archives are very proud to be custodians of two versions of Magna Carta in our Duchy of Lancaster collections, both of which are now out on loan. The 1297 version is part of the BL's fantastic exhibition. I don't know if you've had a chance to go, but if you haven't, I would thoroughly recommend it. And the 1225 version, which as we speak is literally winging its way to Lincoln for the Great Lincolnshire Exhibition where it's going to sit alongside Lincoln's 1215 Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest in a new purpose-built vault, which is very impressive. Uh, last Monday, the National Archives uniquely celebrated the sealing of Magna Carta by welcoming over 100 pupils to queue to debate the meaning and lasting endurance of the Great Charter. I was just saying to somebody before we started, my two favourite questions, are, and bearing in mind this came from 10 and 11-year-olds, not from me, uh, one of the questions to one of our medievalists was, what's the point of all this medieval history anyway? Which I was particularly impressed with. And the other one was, what does it have against pigs? So I guess we might find that out uh, during this evening. Um, working with Discovery Education, we also broadcast live to over 3,600 schools in 20 different countries, including a link-up with our equivalent in Washington, NARA, who, as you no doubt, also hold a 1297 Magna Carta. And in total, we reached 273,000 students assembled across the world to learn about the significance of this iconic record. The following day, we hosted a Liberties event at Kew as part of the Parliament 800 celebrations, with speakers talking about the emergence of rights and liberties, not just in the 13th century, but also in the Victorian era. And tonight, we continue our contribution to the celebrations with a unique opportunity to hear from and engage with four of the world's leading experts in this free debate. Tonight's event is co-hosted with the Pipe Roll Society, an academic society founded at the PRO in 1884, dedicated to publishing editions of medieval documents. I'd like to say a huge thank you to our co-hosts for helping, helping this to make this happen this evening. So I'm now going to hand you over to the chair of the debate, Dr. Sophie Ambler. Sophie is a senior postdoctoral research associate at the University of East Anglia, working on the AHRC-funded Magna Carta project. And Sophie's going to introduce our panellists and explain the format of the event. So thank you for listening for me for two minutes, and I hope you have a really enjoyable evening. Thank you. Good evening. I was asked to step in and chair this evening after the original chair, Baroness de Souza, had to withdraw. So if anybody has come this evening in the hopes of meeting 
um, the Baroness, um, now is your time um, to exit, if you so wish. Um, but otherwise, we are privileged here this evening to have a panel of the leading experts on Magna Carta, Magna Carta in the 13th century, the document and its context, who have been working on the Charter for many years, and in particularly for the past three years as part of, as Jeff said, the AHRC-funded Magna Carta project. Um, you should all have um, in front of you your Magna Carta project bookmarks, um, which give the website address, um, magnacartaresearch.org. Um, and if you visit the website, um, you will find there the fruits of their labours, um, both commentary um, on the Charter and much new research and new resources. Um, I'll just introduce now um, the, uh, the expert panellists for this evening. Um, we begin with uh, Professor Nicholas Vincent of the University of East Anglia, um, who leads the Magna Carta project. Um, Nick is an expert um, on the Charter. It's, uh, the Charter is a document. It's national and international context on which he has published widely um, in many articles and books. Um, he has the distinction of having discovered not one, not two, not three, but four Magna Cartas um, over the years, um, and has made a number of other exciting discoveries um, a bit about which he's going to speak this evening. Professor Louise Wilkinson of Christchurch Canterbury, um, who is a co-investigator on the Magna Carta project, um, who has published widely on um, politics in the 13th century, the role of women in politics, um, and the impact of Magna Carta on women and the family, um, about which uh, she is going to comment this evening. Professor Paul Brand of All Souls College, Oxford, um, is one of the foremost leading, uh, foremost legal scholars um, on working on medieval uh, law. Um, he has published widely on the legislation of the 13th century and on the impact of Magna Carta um, in the law courts and the workings of the law courts. And David Crook, uh, formerly um, of the National Archives, um, who worked here for many years and one, is one of the leading experts on medieval records, also on forest law. Forest law um, played a big part in the, uh, in the, the lead up to Magna Carta um, and in the years that followed. Um, so he's going to be commenting on that this evening. And then um, Professor David Carpenter. David Carpenter, who has worked um, not only on the high politics um, surrounding the Charter, but the impact of the Charter um, on the lower levels of society. Uh, and he has brought that together um, in the commentary for his new book, um, which will be familiar to you because he just happens to have brought along a picture of the front cover um, of the Penguin Classics um, edition, um, which you will be able to find in the shop with uh, several other books um, produced uh, by our experts here. Um, so each um, speaker will um, introduce their topic briefly in five minutes or so um, each, and then the floor will be open to your questions um, and you're free to ask them anything you like on the Charter within reason. Um, and then we'll um, carry on discussion for uh, at least an hour or so and, and, and see where we get. Um, so without further ado, I shall hand things over to Nick. What you see in front of you is a collection of white mice. And up until Christmas this year, we were prancing around in a kitchen um, enjoying ourselves, when suddenly we were transformed into these great prancing horses that have dragged the great golden coach of Magna Carta through this year. And I think we're all heartily relieved that come the 1st of January 2016, we will be turned back into mice and return to our scullery. Um, I'm going to very briefly tell you some of the discoveries of our project. 
This is David Carpenter and myself back in, and Tessa Weber in the middle, back in um, February this year, looking at the four iconic Magna Cartas of 1215 brought together in the British Library. And to refresh your memories, there is one in Lincoln Cathedral, one in Salisbury Cathedral, one unburnt one in the British Library that belonged to Robert Cotton, and another burnt one that belonged to Robert Cotton that was generally supposed to come from Dover Castle. Now, the most exciting discovery this year that's been reported in the newspapers, because the newspapers love stories about money and lost treasure, was the fact that late in December, trawling late at night through the Internet archive catalogue for the Maidstone Record Office uh, in Kent, where really, I can see Duncan Harrington sitting there, Duncan, you really did disgrace yourself, you should have got there before me, um, I came across a reference to that thing, which is an undiscovered, though I must say utterly repulsive-looking Magna Carta from the 1300 issue in the archives of the town of Sandwich. And that story went round the world. It was very, very widely reported. The discovery of new Magna Cartas, though, exciting as it is for the media, isn't really the most exciting outcome of our investigation. So here we are again looking at those four iconic charters and David Carpenter has shown that this particular burnt cotton charter did not come from Dover but was a version of the charter sent to the Cathedral of Canterbury. It corresponds precisely in its text with a text copied into one of the carcheries of the monks of Canterbury. Now that's very important because it means that the Lincoln Charter, which belongs to Lincoln Cathedral, the Salisbury Charter at Salisbury Cathedral, and this Canterbury Charter at Canterbury Cathedral were all three sent to cathedral churches. I'm trying to talk through this microphone, but I'm not sure it's on. So here we have the unburnt cotton charter. Um, it, the, the fact that those three others belong to cathedrals raises questions of the status of this. Where did this one come from? Well, one of the things we were able to do is look on the back and see that there is writing on the back. One day, somebody will match up that writing with the endorsements of charters from a cathedral archive, I have no doubt, and show the origins of that unburnt cotton charter. Our project has also raised questions about who actually wrote these documents. There's the beginning and end of the Lincoln Magna Carta. Here's a charter issued by the king to the Bishop of Lincoln in July 1215. Here's the opening at the top of the Lincoln Magna Carta, and at the bottom, that July Charter, not, as it were, issued, as we shall see, from the King's Chancery at all, but by a scribe attached to the Bishop of Lincoln. There's the end of the Lincoln Magna Carta, and at the bottom, the end of that other charter issued to the Bishop in July. What that shows is that the Lincoln Magna Carta was actually written by one of the Bishop of Lincoln's scribes was produced by the bishop. There's the Salisbury Magna Carta, and there's a document that turned up very recently that was produced in the chapter of Salisbury shortly after Runnymede and the issuing of Magna Carta. And if we put the two together, although the paleographers using their witch-pricking techniques, which established by poking a stick whether or not they are actually written by the same people. And that which pricking on a Thursday afternoon can produce a completely different result from what it produces on a Friday morning. Um, but um, if they're not written in the same hand, those two charters, they are written in hands that are remarkably similar. They imply that the Salisbury Charter was also written by a scribe attached to the Bishop of Salisbury. In other words, the Charter was not just, not just preserved by 
or debated by, but actually copied out by scribes attached to the English bishops. On Monday, we reported this thing, which we actually found some time ago, but we are now, as it were, in a position to release to the wild. This thing survives in the manuscript of Lambeth Palace. There it is, down at the bottom of the page. There it is, as it were, transcribed. Now, what this is, is an entirely new letter in the name of the 25 barons of Magna Carta, beginning with Robert Fitzwalter and various of the earls, clearly issued at the time of the making of peace, the 19th or 20th of June, 1215, and establishing four knights who are to receive the oaths of the men of Kent to the 25 barons of Magna Carta. This is a revolutionary document because it shows that the 25 actually took control of local administration in June 1215. It does a number of other things, too. It establishes that the date of the Treaty of London, the treaty by which London was surrounded to the 25, which is issued in the name of the same group of 25 barons who appear at the start of this, must also be around the 19th and 20th of June. It thereby confirms the theory of James Holt, and rather ditches the theory of H.G. Richardson. Much more importantly, the four knights who were appointed by the 25 to take oaths from the men of Kent are themselves very interesting. Three of them hold their lands from the Archbishop of Canterbury. In other words, they are Langton's knights. They are knights of Stephen Langton, and they appear in Langton's own charters. Now, that does require us to revise our opinion of the position of Stephen Langton in the summer of 1215, makes him much less of a neutral arbiter and much more of a positive advocate of the Charter. Now I'm going to fly a kite. There is the unburnt cotton Charter. If you see at the bottom of it, there are three slits cut in the bottom of the unburnt cotton Charter. Through to the 1920s, those were identified as slits four tags to carry three tags and seals. A man named Fox in the 1920s came up with a better theory, which was that they were the stab marks of the dagger with which King John, in his fury, bore down on the charter. Now, that was all knocked on its head in the 1940s by Collins of the British Library, who showed, or who attempted to show, that they were actually bookbinders cuts made at the time when this charter was bound up into a book in the 17th century. And that theory has been accepted ever since. The problem is that Cotton did not use a bookbinder who made those sort of marks on other charters. So what are they? That's the unburnt Cotton Charter. What are they? I'm going to show you some other documents here. There's the Cotton Charter. There's a document, famous document, settling a dispute over the position of Lambeth in 1197. There's the Treaty of London in 1215. Do you see what's going on at the bottom of those documents? There's a very famous set of baronial seals, which used to be a lot better than that when I first saw them, and now there are large crumbs of wax and bits of dust at the bottom of the box in which they're kept. But um, here is the guarantee for the papal settlement of 1213. Do you see what's going on at the bottom of that document? It does raise questions over what those marks at the bottom of the unburnt cotton charter are and quite how many seals were attached to it and what precisely it is. And I say that chiefly to annoy David Carpenter. Uh, and that's...
Well, you will have seen an awful lot in the popular press this year about how Magna Carta is fundamentally an elitist document. And there's also been an awful lot written about how it was an avowedly masculine document as well. In a piece published in the London Review of Books in April this year, Ferdinand Mount said that basically Magna Carta had very little to offer women. So I'm going to move on now. I'm going to basically um, help to debunk that thoroughly and show you that actually from the point of view of women there was a lot within it that was very, very good news in 1215 and indeed in the later reissues. So we're going to move from looking at the document as an object to the contents of Magna Carta now. Now women are often the forgotten beneficiaries of 1215 then. And this isn't altogether entirely surprising. When we think of medieval women, we think of them as inferior beings, the lesser of the two sexes. And this is an idea that owed a great deal to contemporary medical and religious thought, which saw women as deeply problematic, psychologically and physically weak creatures. But if we look at the detail that survives in contemporary documents at how women lived their lives, we actually get a sense that they were central to families in this period as daughters, they were central to the working of important households as wives, and they were also very important within local communities through the economic occupations that they fulfilled, albeit poorly paid ones very often. And we also get a sense that they could sometimes be great lords of earldoms, baronies and other lesser estates. So it's not altogether surprising then that their interests were actually included in Magna Carta. So central were they to the well-being of baronial, comital and knightly families. And we have to remember that a lot of the rebel barons who took part in the Civil War of 1215-17 owed their fortunes, at least in part, to wealthy wives and they appreciated the lands and connections that these women brought to them, and they wanted to protect their interests as part of the interests of the wider family and lordly unit. So if we have a look within Magna Carta, there are a surprising number of clauses that do address women's rights in important ways, and which were very much needed in the England of King John. So clauses two and three of the Great Charter regulated inheritance tax. Um, and the circumstances in which that inheritance tax known as relief could be levied. In England in this period, women could inherit lands as secondary heirs, so daughters would usually inherit in the absence of sons in the same generation. In addition to this, clauses 4, 5 and 6 of the Great Charter offered protection for the persons, properties and marriages of underage heirs, for children, essentially, the children of tenants-in-chief, those men and women who held their lands directly from the crown. And this was a jolly good thing. If we move through the document as well and look at later clauses, most famously there were clauses 7 and 8, which offered protection for widows. So it guaranteed them free and swift access to the property to which they were entitled on their husband's death. So they were to have their marriage portions and inheritances if they were heiresses immediately and without delay or disruption. They were allowed to have their dower, their widow's share of their dead husband's lands, within a 40-day period after their husband's death. And rather nicely, they were protected from the threat of forced remarriage. And then we have clause 11, which offered protection for the widow of a man who died in debt to Jewish moneylenders 
It allowed her her dower without having to pay anything of the dead man's debt. And then we have within clause 26 an acknowledgement that a widow was entitled to a share of her husband's chattels, his movable goods. We'll just look at why clauses 7 and 8 were in fact needed in 1215 and whether or not they actually worked in the long term. Well, they were needed because heiresses and widows were heavily exploited by the Angevin kings, but particularly by King John. If we look at John's reign, we know of 149 widows who were forced to pay fines to secure the right not to be compelled to remarry. And they paid on average £184 each. This is at a time when baronial incomes on average stood at around about £200 per annum. So they were heavy fines. If we turn back the clock and look at Richard I's reign, so the reign of John's predecessor, 68 widows had paid on average £40 less in his reign. So King John really did tend to turn the screws on these sources of income, um, largely because he was a king who was determined to try and reconquer Normandy and needed money for his war chest. If we look at the fine rolls for John's reign, a particular type of chancery roll, we find some examples of really the worst abuses of the king's control over widows in this period. So poor old Horwees, the Countess of Omar, paid a fine of 3,333 widows in 1212 after she was widowed for a third time so that she would not be forced to remarry again and so she could finally enjoy her estates in peace as a widow. Now, Horwees made this fine with a good deal of background experience. Um, she had actually been forced by the king, Richard I, to marry her second husband, William de Fors, a Poitavin naval commander, who was really quite below her in social rank. And if you have a look at the pipe rolls, exchequer records from this period, we know that King Richard had taken into his possession her lands and chattels, which had persuaded Hawi, strangely enough, to take her second husband, his candidate. So when her third husband died in 1212, she knew what she was doing. She wanted to avoid that same unhappy domestic situation again. And so eager was she to protect this right that she actually paid off £1,000 of her fine within the first financial year. This was a desperate widow. And then she died in the following year, so it's quite sad, really. In terms of why this was also needed, if we move down through the ranks of noble society, we encounter ladies like Ada de Morville, the widow of Richard de Lucy, who was Lord of Egremont, who offered the king 500 pounds so she too might have her inheritance, her dower, and her marriage portion, and also avoid forced remarriage. So £500, this is five times the amount of inheritance tax or relief imposed on barons under the terms of Clause 2 of Magna Carta. So that was another hefty amount of money. And if we move down through the ranks of landholding society, we also encounter some local widows who also suffered from this practice. So ladies like Matilda, the widow of Roger de Somerville, who had to pay the king £6 and one palfrey, not to marry because actually she didn't hold any property from the king or from the Earl of Chester who tried to sell off her marriage to William de Chalcombe. Did then 
clauses 7 and 8, which protected widows' access to property and also protected them against restraint work. Well, thanks to the fine rolls of Henry III's reign, and you can all go and look at this on the web for yourselves because they're all up there for free, thanks to the Henry III Fine Rolls Project. Yes, they did. They were marvellous. So in Henry III's reign, if we count them up all together, following in the footsteps of the wonderful Professor Scott Waugh, we find just 44 widows in a 56-year reign who made a fine not to be forced to remarry. And we also have a happy tale where widows find it easier to access their property freely. They might get into little inheritance disputes in the king's courts, but they're normally quite successful litigants. So actually, the wonderful thing about Magna Carta was it was exceptionally good news for women. Hurrah! Magna Carta and the law. Well, the first thing I think to think about, to talk about, is whether Magna Carta was law. It looks like a grant from the king to a particular group of people. But actually, when you look, read through it properly, you'll see that there is a clause that says everything that the king is granting to his men, everyone else is to observe in respect of their people. It is already intended to become legislation of general effect. Um, very little is done for the unfree, but for all the free, there are lots of things in Magna Carta. The 1215 Magna Carta doesn't actually get carried into effect. There's very little of it that is in effect for any period of time. It gets suspended um, by the Pope within months. The long-term effect of Magna Carta is through its children, its bastard children, you might almost say. Uh, the 1216 reissue, which is a revision, 1217 reissue, which is yet more of a revision with additional, quite important additional clauses, the 1225 definitive reissue of Magna Carta, where for the first time um, something is specifically given in return for Magna Carta. Taxation, which helps to copper bottom the whole business of Magna Carta, because at least the king can't turn around and say he was forced into Magna Carta, because he actually got something for it in return. And that happens again at the end of the 13th century, when uh, in 1297 um, there is a reissue, a confirmation of the 1225 Magna Carta, and again it's specifically in return for uh, taxation. That helps to embed Magna Carta into English law, and importantly long-term in English law, um, because of the way in which knowledge of earlier legislation pretty much disappears within the English legal elite by the later 13th century, Magna Carta counts as the very first bit of legislation on the English statute book, which is pretty much the position it still has today. How did lawyers use Magna Carta? How did lawyers and judges use Magna Carta in the 13th century? Well, they use it partly by being able to get writs from the king's chancery to initiate litigation, citing specific clauses of Magna Carta, sometimes simply prohibitions to others based on clauses of Magna Carta. 
You couldn't go along to Chancery and get any writ based on Magna Carta. Chancery just wouldn't give you a writ saying that. Some of the clauses of Magna Carta were enforced through inquiries at sessions of royal justices in each of the counties held on a fairly regular basis. And you could cite Magna Carta in uh, litigation of other kinds where citing a particular bit of uh, Magna Carta helped your case, helped your argument. Knowledge of Magna Carta, we know, and David has made some, David um, Carpenter has made some interesting discoveries here, but I've also done a, a bit of work on it myself. Um, knowledge of Magna Carta was obviously spread in the first place by all these official copies. But by the middle of the 13th century, there are significant numbers of private copies. And increasingly, as you move into the last quarter of the 13th century, there are lots of copies of Magna Carta in books made for the use of legal experts, people wanting to bring cases in the courts and to make arguments in the courts, along with other pieces of legislation, other legal works of one sort or another. Um, it becomes part of what every lawyer has in their uh, bottom uh, drawer, something that they may even carry around in relatively small books like this that they can put in their saddle when they move from one place to another. And we also know that by the last quarter of the 13th century, there are translations of Magna Carta. Well, they've, they've actually been around for quite a long time. But summaries of Magna Carta, the, the lawyer book copies of Magna Carta, have brief summaries at the beginning which are numbered and whose numbers correspond to numbers in the margin of the texts. And nowadays we think of statutes as always being divided up into chapters. It starts as a private thing in these lawyers' books. And there's a, almost a kind of standard list of chapter numbers that you find in texts of Magna Carta. There are also uh, praises of Magna Carta that you begin by the last um, quarter of the 13th century as well. And that's a very important way in which people knew about Magna Carta even when they couldn't actually afford texts of it themselves and in which they understood it in the best way that they could. Sometimes it's clearly anachronistic. They actually get things wrong. But that's how they knew Magna Carta. Um, how did Magna Carta survive till today? Let me say something very briefly about that because it's a huge subject. One of the ways in which Magna Carta survived was in the way in which, from the 14th century onwards, the Inns of Court, the place for training English lawyers, the Inns of Court had lectures. And they had lectures on legislation. They had lectures on the main pieces of 13th century legislation. We have full... Um, copies of the, the notes of people attending those lectures in the 15th century and in the 16th century, but they, they were pretty certainly already doing those in the 14th century. And what you can see from those lecture notes is that what they were doing was um, glossing what Magna Carta meant. What Magna Carta meant, how it had been cited in cases, how it had been interpreted in cases. And you can see in those um, lectures 
already the process of turning Magna Carta into something really rather different from what it was in its original context. And that is a long-term process that goes on. Uh, Highlights of that really after the end of that in the work of Sir Edward Cook, who in his second institutes was in effect doing a modern version of that, intruded into the understanding of Magna Carta a whole lot of things that weren't originally in Magna Carta at all. Um, but become very important. Um, Things like the right to habeas corpus, the right to jury trial on major criminal offences. Not in the original 1215 Magna Carta. There was no uh, criminal jury trial in 1215. That only came about at a later stage. Habeas corpus of the kind that we later know is a 16th century invention but they are then read back into Magna Carta. Magna Carta becomes a a guarantee of both of those things, and therefore um, a particularly valuable guarantee. I feel a bit of a fraud standing here as an expert on Magna Carta, because I'm not one. All I really know about is the forest. But a forest occurs in Magna Carta. And my earliest acquaintance with Magna Carta, or my earliest acquaintances with Magna Carta, were in circumstances which Jeff James, the chief executive, would probably find, make his hair stand on end. <laughs> um, in 1983, I was asked to go to take uh, the Duchy of Lancaster Magna Carta, which is uh, from the PRO, to a celebration of the Magna Carta Trust at St Albans. It went in the back of my mini metro which I was very proud, it was new. Uh, And uh, my girlfriend went with me, and we had quite a good time there. And the following morning, um, on the front page of our national newspaper, there was a picture of a server from St Albans Cathedral carrying the 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 charter, which was what the mayor wanted, and me holding a a borrowed umbrella over it. It was a very hot day. (laughs) Three years later, which was in 1986, I think, a similar event took place at Runnymede itself. I went to that, again with said girlfriend, took Magna Carta in a taxi. Came back in another taxi, and the taxi driver was drunk. We were sitting in the back, hanging on for dear life, going round London squares, where they usually park cars. He didn't seem to, there weren't any actually there at the time, but um, he, 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 if there had been, he would have hit them. Which led me to recommend that we never did anything like this again. <laughs> and I think that was followed up. <laughs> Um, as to the, the forest side of the uh, Magna Carta, um, I'm interested in the period leading up to Magna Carta and the period just after, particularly. Um, the crucial dates are that around 1170, the extent of the forest in England, the royal forest, completely under the king's control and the control of his foresters, reached its fullest extent, as far as one can tell. From that point onwards, uh, people were trying to get rid of the forest laws from air, the areas that they lived in. Uh, this is particularly landowners who were troubled by the problems of keeping um, the vert free for the deer, uh, not, not allowing it to be damaged. And, of course, um, the poorer people hunted the deer. In 1189, Richard I arrived on the throne ready to go on crusade, and he wanted money to help pay for the crusade. He was selling off all sorts of things. And among these were grants of forest, removal of forest law from some quite large areas for which he received money. 
There was a little flurry of these grants in the 1189-90, and he went off on crusade, and the whole forest situation went quiet until the late 1190s. Then there was a, just before John came to the throne, there was another big flurry of um, purchasers of disafforestation, which went on until about 1206-1207. And then there was the, the forest moderated in the few years before Magna Carta. The Magna Carta, the original baronial demands known, tried to remove the severe penalties for uh, hunting deer, uh, which were quite very severe indeed. They involved emasculation and blinding. And this particular clause disappeared from Magna Carta itself. There were clauses in there about reducing the area of the forest, but only taking out the forest that John himself created, which were very few, in fact. And the really important document for this aspect of the uh, of Magna Carta is really develops into the separate Charter of the Forest in 1217, which carries on from the, the 1215 Magna Carta, but um, brings back the the which has been dropped the the. The point about getting rid of these horrible penalties um, was dropped out of the 1215 Magna Carta. It was brought back in the Charter of the Forest. And there are also promises to take away the forest uh, back to the be- that had been created since the beginning of Raid of Henry II, which was in 1154. And this led to a period of over a decade when there are lots of groups of knights walking around bits of edges of fields and along riverbanks, perambulating the the forest boundaries and they were finally uh, it, there were settlements in various counties that reduced the, the um, area of the forest very greatly by the uh, mid 1230s after which it went quiet so the, the crucial dates in this are 1189 when real sales of disafforestation began Magna Carta itself in the various versions, the Charter of the Forest and the flurry of activity until the middle 1230s the forest law goes on for many centuries, really up until the 19th century in some places after that. But the crucial dates are the ones I've mentioned. Uh, there are revivals later on in Henry VII's reign in the 17th century, even under Charles II. But the crucial turning point is Magna Carta, the Charter of the Forest and the demands that um, were acceded to in that. Um, the Charter of the Forest is quite a complex document because it brings in a lot of issues which weren't alive in 1215. In 1217, gives all sorts of details about how forest administration should be run. Uh, difficult to tell how much of it is new because there's very little evidence before 1215 except on a few issues. So Magna Carta is somewhat concerned with the forest, but for me, the real document is the 1217 Forest Charter and its reissue along with Magna Carta in 1225. Magna Carta is known as Magna Carta because of its size. In 1218, the first it's the Great Charter. It's great not because of the liberty it contains, but because it's bigger than the Forest Charter, when that's a separate document. So it's worth remembering that the, the term Magna Carta does not mean great in the, except in the physical sense originally. Um, well, thank you very much. I think I'm going to talk about three things very, very briefly. Um, the first thing is this, that working on the Magna Carta project has been tremendously exciting because all sorts of discoveries are being made all the time. 
and frequently you're having to think again and think, oh my God, uh, everything I thought was wrong, uh, now we must um, think round it and everything has changed. And, um, well, first of all, this is my first introduction to Magna Carta from my nursery history of England, which actually dates from before the uh, Second World War. And rather nicely, I think you can actually see a stamp there, with which I think John is going to seal the charter, uh, though I must admit the text over here has him uh, sealing it. Uh, sorry, signing it. Now, what I want to talk about, first of all, is a very, very fascinating discovery made only this week, not by me, but by Tessa Weber. So I sure, wish she was here. She certainly looks a lot more decorative than um, I do, who is, of course, fellow of Trinity College, uh, Cambridge, and the great paleographical expert on the project. Now, this takes us to the whole question of who wrote Magna Carta. And I'm going to whiz on through these wonderful slides, Votes for Women, Magna Carta Dave, until we get to... These are all from um, various things, but um, there's Langton's seal, the articles of the barons. Right. Now, Nick said that um, one of the very fascinating discoveries of the chart, of the project, let's see if I can just get back, to, is connects with the Lincoln Magna Carta. So this is an engraving of the Lincoln Magna Carta made in the early 19th century, the original, and I'm not in these hallowed portals of the public record office going to explain how this came about. The original is much damaged and uh, faded. Um, so um, what's fascinating is the idea that this was written not by a scribe of the king, but by a scribe of the Bishop of Lincoln, Hugh of Wells. And the basis for thinking that is that much the same hand can be found in the charters of Hugh of Wells, like this, and particularly perhaps in this one. And Tessa Weber allows that the hand of this charter of the Bishop of Lincoln from 1217 is probably the hand of the Lincoln Magna Carta. So, fine, and that all fits into the, um, you know, the, the huge importance of the church in producing the charter as well as preserving and proclaiming it. But then, only last week, collapse of this theory, possibly, because Tessa noticed some, something else. And that is that one of the four originals of the 1217 Magna Carta of Henry III, one preserved probably at Osney Abbey in Oxford, that also seems to be in the same hand as the Lincoln Magna Carta. Now, how on earth is the Bishop of Lincoln, a scribe of the Bishop of Lincoln, also writing one of the four originals of the 1217 Magna Carta? It's very difficult to explain that. Tessa had one idea, which is Oxford is in the Lincoln Diocese. So could the Bishop of Lincoln have somehow been involved again in 1217 in writing out these charters? But I thought, so she put this to me, and I thought, but that doesn't work because we've got a writ for the proclamation of the 1217 Magna Carta, and that writ says it's to go direct to the sheriffs of, of each county, and the sheriffs are to proclaim it and uphold it. So where there's no room for the bishops. So I spent the whole weekend thinking, oh my God, I was terribly bad company. Uh, we had a very distinguished French scholar with us, and I could hardly bear to sort of talk to her. I kept on thinking of, what's the way round this? Uh, should we think of uh, scribes of the Bishop of Lincoln moving back into the king's service, going backwards and forwards, and so on and so forth? Oh, God. It's all so complicated now. 
Uh, why has Tessa discovered this? Uh, I'm sure she's right. But, um, I, uh, sorry, the, the, the parallel between this and the 1217 Oxford uh, Magna Carta is really very striking. I'm sure she is right. But then, on Sunday evening, I thought, I'll just have a look at this writ again, the writ for the proclamation of the 1217 Magna Carta. And my eyes could almost have fallen out of my head. It's here, it's in the public record office. We could all go up there and get out the Chancery close roll where this is. Because, and I completely forgotten this, there is a memoranda about how the 1217 Charter is to be distributed, how it is to be sent to the sheriffs. And what it actually says is that the sheriffs of uh, Lincolnshire, Oxfordshire, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire and Rutland, so all the counties in the Lincoln Diocese, they are to receive their, their letters about the proclamation of Magna Carta through the Bishop of Lincoln. So the Bishop of Lincoln was the intermediary in sending out the letters for the proclamation of the 1217 Magna Carta. And I think it must follow, almost certainly, that perhaps he would just send one exemplar of the charter, and then it was up to him to copy out the other ones for the sheriffs. And so that fits in beautifully, again, with how the, um, the church was involved, not just in the 1215 charter, but the Bishop of Lincoln was central to the, um, the, the whole distribution and the writing out of the 1217 charter as well. Although I, I think... It, his Paul Clark didn't do them all because the Forest Charter at Lincoln for 1217 is actually in a different hand. So that was the first thing I want to say. Now, the second is I wanted to draw your attention, which David did, to one of the great treasures of the National Archives, which I think should be on um, display in the Keeper's Gallery, if I may say so. And it is the very, very first mention of Magna Carta altogether. And we're just about to come to it. And it's there. Now, this is the, precisely the letter about the proclamation of the 1217 Magna Carta, and it was issued in February 1218. It's on the doors of the, it's on the close rolls of February 1218. It's up there in the, it's never been, as far as I know, ever been displayed, and that is the very first mention of the word Magna Carta. You can all see M-A-G-N-E-C-A-R-T-E. And even more extraordinary, it's a scribal afterthought. You see, he's got a little arrow there to put it in above the line. Why is he doing that? Well, David explained it. This is a letter about the proclamation of the two charters, the Charter of the Forest and the um, physically larger um, Magna Carta, as he describes it. And he has to draw attention to something in the last line of the bigger charter. So he thinks, how shall I describe it? Obviously, I'm going to describe it as the Great Charter because it's physically bigger than the smaller Charter of the Forest, which are now issued together. And so he thought, how should I do it? I'm going to call it Magna Carta. So, you know, isn't that an amazing thought? That's the first entry of that word into history. And finally, I'll um, continue just with what, with what um, um, Paul said about the copies of the Charter. I think one of the most fascinating things come out of the project, of, 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 of many fascinating things, the extraordinary number of copies made of the 1215, 1217 and 1225 co charters in the 13th century. And they show all sorts of things. The first is the 1215 ones are special because ever so many of them, half of them, actually are not of the final authorised version. 
There are draft versions, and I think that shows how unofficial copies of the Charter were very, very important in spreading understanding of it, not always correct, um, authorised version understanding of it. But So what happened, I think, after the negotiations at Runnymede was that all these drafts were swept up, and lots and lots of people, because it was so difficult to get the Charter out of King John, uh, lots of people just copied up their own unofficial charters. And secondly, the copies of the 1215 Charter, of course, helped to keep alive some of its more radical proposals, which were dropped in the later charters. So that's how people knew about, uh, you know, taxation needed the consent of the kingdom. And that's how people knew about the 25 barons who were to enforce the charter. And as as Nigel Saul has shown in a super piece, um, you know, that still kept alive in the 1380s against Richard II. And finally, I think it destroys the myth that in the 13th century which is propagated by historians as distinguished as David Starkey, that in the 13th century, the Magna Carta was simply guff, that it was simply vague, vague principles which had no practical bite. That's so wrong. Um, people, lawyers, but also uh, people in monasteries, knights, were copying out the Charter again and again, and they were commenting on differences <coughs> between it and the Charter. i better stop because my voice is giving way. Um, between it and the Charter of uh, all the various different versions. So, you know, this is far more than just a vague symbol of good government. It's really very, very well known in the whole political community. So thank you very much. Uh, historians of medieval Anglo-Jewish history uh, love to quote Sir James Holt's quotes about uh, chapters 10 and 11 being superficial. And it's not a view that I subscribe to, particularly on the evidence of so, sort of the exchequer of the Jews, and I'm just wondering what all of your thoughts are on whether the chapters 10 and 11 are in fact superficial, particularly oh, Professor Brands. They are, of course, chapters that disappear um, in the subsequent which kind of reappear in 1236 in the Statute of Rome. They relate to a kind of earlier history, um, and at least part of it is about rival claims over the land of heirs of a Jewish creditor in possession and the lord of whom the land was held. And that continues to be a problem. It continues to be a problem for both the lord and the Jewish creditor. Um, He's dealing with a real problem, so it isn't superficial in that sense at all. Uh, It doesn't deal with the kind of wider problem by credit um, and by the king's interest in uh, many debts that have been owed to Jews which pass into the king's hands on quite a large scale um, in the 13th century. But that's a partial answer, not a whole answer to the question. Gentlemen, just next to you there, pass along. In terms of Magna Carta, I wonder if the research that you've told us about on women is available, because it sounds fascinating and really important. And I'm wondering also, as somebody who is organising a concert in Bristol to mark the 1216 Magna Carta, whether I need to do one with 1217 and I don't know how much longer I'll be around because I'm 67 already. Could William Marshall have gone the other way and back the French king? which case would you and I now be speaking French? Thank you. 
With regard to the work on women, um, there was some excellent work that was done from the 1980s onwards by Janet Lowengard on dower litigation. She'll be in the audience. Oh, is she? Brilliant. Yeah, which actually... Yeah. <laughs> and really, that's the first port of call for dower litigation. Um, and when I undertook my doctoral thesis in the 1990s with David, um, I used, I applied a lot of her ideas to Lincolnshire as a starting point. So it's very, very important work. Scott War's splendid study on the Lordship of England, which was published in the 1990s, um, remains one of the most useful studies of wardships and marriages, really from the, peri the Andrean period forwards. And that is absolutely excellent. But I am in the process of writing a Women in the Age of Magna Carta article that I've been working on during my study leave um, to carry forward the work of Janet, hopefully, and also the wonderful late Professor Sir James Holt, who spoke about um, the fines to avoid forced remarriage in his great work Magna Carta. And he has the lovely phrase where he describes them as the first great step forward in the emancipation of women. And actually, if you carry that forward into Henry III's reign, and Richard and Edward the First reign, they were tremendously important. So how is it that I have this idea that it was only the closer attention has been paid now to the wording of specific clauses. So you know the fact that clauses two and three refer to heirs, and actually women inherited land um, in the same generation. I think there's been much much greater attention paid to the specific wording. And also one of the happy things that's come about as a result of the project is we're now revisiting all the lovely Curia Regis roles, again, for John's reign and Henry III's reign, as well as all the wonderful material in the archives that's coming to light. So, and we're just looking at things we used to take for granted, again. Now, I'll answer that for you. Um, yeah, well, if William Marshall had changed sides in 1215, 1216, uh, or had abandoned Henry III right at, uh, on John's death. I think it's very possible that um, Louis would have won the war and Henry III would have been packed off to some monastery, if that. And in, as Louis had no brief for Magna Carta, it's inconceivable that he would have um, confirmed it. Um, I think there might well have been no Magna Carta. So you could very well say that if William Marshall, and assuming lots of people would have gone with him, if he had abandoned the young king... Uh, in October, November 1216, that would have been it. Can, can, I, can I add something to that response? The whole of the English ruling classes in the 13th century spoke French as their normal language. Longer term, it seems highly probable, at least to me, that um, exactly the same thing would have happened, even if a little bit won, that people in England would by the 15th or 16th century, that we were speaking English as well. Did, did Tony have a question then, Andrew? Just make sure I'm not going to destroy everyone's eardrums. Uh, I think a question for Nick or a comment. I thought the writ of 19th or 20th of June was, was fascinating in terms of uh, uh, the numbers, the four nights and the 12 nights that sort of echo back and forth uh, through the, the history of uh, the central government and the localities. But uh, the comment might be more, although three of these knights had connections to the archbishop, uh, maybe we, we need to avoid jumping to the conclusion that the knights are only acting as representatives or ciphers of the great barons. 
Uh, do you think there's a chance of the Knights or a likelihood of the Knights having more agency in this period? What I found interesting there is that those four Knights are rebels. And in one case, certainly before running the and they go on to, to be so. It's, it's, it's not established exactly how they are appointed, Tony. So you're right. It could be that they are more proactive. I think the fact that three of them are Lankin's knights is interesting. And there is quite a lot of other evidence that's emerging that Langton's position here is a great deal less neutral than has previously been supposed. I don't, sorry, I don't quite... I, I sort of agree with Nick there. But I would slightly differ with him there, in that I think this fits into Langton doing everything he could once the Charter is out to preserve its peace. But actually, it's quite clear he does, he's very even-handed between the two sides, because on the one hand, he does all he can to enforce the Charter, to enforce the taking of the oath, and that's what he's doing there. But on the other hand, he associated himself with two proclamations uh, supporting King John, against the barons. So, you know, it, he is trying to hold a very... I think, I think nobody did more than Archbishop Langton to try and preserve Magna Carta's peace. And he did that by trying to be even-handed between the two, the two sides. But I, 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 to my mind, the fact that I think he may well have sort of, you know, his attitude must have been known. He passionately believed in the Charter, and that certainly clears the way it, for his, those three knights to... Uh, take part in, in the way they did. But I, th I, I agree with you, Tony. I don't think, I think they also had their own agency. And someone like William of Eynesford was no, um, you know, he was a cell, he was a, a baronial status. He didn't need Langton to tell him to, what to do. And uh, on the other hand, what, what Richard of Gravely is, is a much smaller fish. All three of them, of course, attest one Langton charter over Rochester together, which is an extraordinary um, thing. We have a question at the back, and then we'll come here, and then we'll, we'll get to everybody in turn, don't worry. If the copies of the Charter are being produced by cathedral scribes around the country, how are they getting the text to know what to write down? Are they uh, working from a copy that's sent out, or are they travelling to London to get the text? How do they find that out? We don't know. Um, it depends when this text is being produced, because the king is hanging around after the running itself. There's a lot of nonsense talked about the, the date of the charter, and um, David, I think, has hammered home the fact that the charter is very clearly dated on the 15th of June. There is no need to assume that there was then an ongoing process after the 15th of June where the actual, where the charter itself, the terms of the charter was agreed, because it's perfectly standard to have a diplomatic treaty that is then negotiated and agreed and appealed to Swantry. So there's plenty of time after running need for the charter to be done. Mm -hmm. One very minor thing there, the, the minor variations in spellings, the oddities of the spelling of running need and so on, in each of the, the various versions of the 1215 charter, all of that implies to me that a lot of this is done by dictation. And I've long thought that that's true of quite a lot of what the Chancery does. <laughs> that it's done from sound. And if you hear those words, you can write them down with different spellings. If you were actually copying off one version, you're much more likely to go for the spellings that are in that version. So the answer is actually we don't know, but we can invent a solution. Just to add, add to that, there is a, perhaps at a point we're yeah, making that 
and they must have been copied somewhere close enough that they could be sealed with the royal seal. Yep. So, so I was going to say, um, Adrian, I think, had a point. Sorry, Adrian. I think Paul has just probably beaten me to it, actually, um, because I was very interested to hear that they were there was the Lincoln copy produced at Lincoln, Salisbury copy produced at Salisbury, or by, by the Bishop of Salisbury, perhaps in his palace somewhere or on en route. But the Great Seal during this period, if I remember rightly, is at Runnymede, uh, sorry, at uh, Reading, then it goes to North Hampshire. So uh, at some point they've got to be sealed with the Great Seal. So wherever the Great Seal is, that's where they're going to be sealed. Charters are issued in a month after Runnymede. <laughs> Elias of Durham took six of charters away on 23rd of July from Oxford. Now, I think it's highly likely that those were written at Oxford, and they could easily have been written by a Episcopal scribe of Oxford, because lots of bishops were there at the time. So I think it's more likely that Episcopal scribes were working in the sort of royal chancery environment, and that's then, they're obviously sealed there. So I think that's more likely than that uh, a draft was taken away and they were copied out in Lincoln or in Salisbury. But you're assuming there that the seal is at Westminster, no, whereas the seal could be travelling round with the king. But the bishops all travel with their own scribes, mm, so all exactly. scribes. So we don't think that the being taken off and copied out there by a Lincoln scribe. It's the Lincoln scribe who comes to the charter or comes to the king's seal. What do you make of the theory that John was actually an underrated king? And if he was, uh, does that make the charter less significant because um, it wasn't actually a document of the people that sort of rose up against the despotic king? I completely disagree with the idea that he was underrated. I think he was incredibly clever and incredibly hard-nosed king with terrible interpersonal skills and I think there is no doubt that he really did turn the screws on England financially so we see royal revenues quadrupling during the course of his reign I think actually his rule must have instilled within his English subjects for good reason a sense of panic a growing sense of panic over his widespread hostage taking his treatment of the Breos family his treatment of his own nephew Arthur whom he was widely believed to have murdered and I think you do get a growing sense of panic and concern over the financial exactions and over the king's general behaviour. He emerges as a very suspicious character, a man who increasingly relies on a small circle of advisers as his reign progresses. And there is no accident that many of his advisers are mentioned by name in Clause 50 of Magna Carta. People like the hateful Philip Mark, the Sheriff of Nottingham, our prototype Disney character, who was who was a thief, who was later accused of false arrest and made life very difficult for the great Baroness Matilda de Cause in Nottinghamshire. It's no accident that they were mentioned in the Charter. I think John was a very capable, disastrous king. Is, that it, is it not significant that lots of the sources were written by um, the church at the time, which obviously had an agenda against John? No, because if you look at the chancery rolls, you get a sense of the pure pressure that he's applying on his subjects. And also, if you look at particularly at the fine rolls, the fact that people are coming repeatedly to the king's court to try and seek sort of, or to try and safeguard rights, to buy away sort of the threat of imprisonment, the threat of forced remarriage, you get a real sense of momentum and pressure under John. And it really is quite disturbing. Uh, the chancery rolls, the pipe rolls. 
Um, there are royal letters, um, royal letters and writs, all sorts of exciting things, all sorts of business. They're different from the pipe rolls. But within the pipe rolls, you also get a sense of the king's financial exactions too. I was going to say, talking of um, the Sheriff of Nottingham, mm. John's exactions when it came to the forest were pretty egregious, but David is the, um, the expert on that. Well, I, mean, I don't think he was as bad as Louis said. I mean, oh, I think. Anyone working in the public record office, and David worked in the public record <coughs> office with great distinction for many years, is going to like King John because he produced all these wonderful records. Now that you wouldn't be here, I think that this gentleman is maybe going on an article in history today by Graham Seal. Um, uh, you may indeed be taught by Graham Seal. Yeah, I don't yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, imagine that Graham Seal is trying to place an article in history today. Um, and this was the anniversary of Vlad the Impaler. He would publish an article saying that Vlad the Impaler was a much underrated jewel. It was harsh but fair. Um, so uh, I wouldn't believe everything you read in history today. And honor Professor Nicholas Vincent. If it wasn't for Professor Vincent, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have never heard of the Magna Carta. I'm from the USA. Um, I learned a lot about the Magna Carta through his lectures on the internet. And again, I can't thank you enough. They were mesmerizing. I used to play them over and over and over. Um, now for my question. I'm dressed for a reason like this. Um, pretend that I'm a Hollywood producer. And I'm about to make a movie entitled The Missing Magna Carta, King John's Revenge. Part of my job function is to find the perfect cast. And I think all of you would be part of that per perfect cast. So here's my question. It's divided into three subsections. First of all, which character would you like to play in my movie? Second question, what are your reasons for choosing that character? And the third is what personality traits, qualifications, or skill sets that you possess that would make you the best actor for this character's role? <laughs> he wants to play King John and he really I think it's more interesting to actually sorry I think it was a lovely question uh, I think we might rather than trying to cast ourselves yeah. of who might uh, amongst the current fraternity of very talented actors and actresses out there uh, play these parts um, so um, but having said that I'm not sure where I would start so Sophie what do you think um, I remember having this conversation um, a while ago, and I remember we had to find a part for Kate Winslet, but I think that was because somebody was a fan of Kate Winslet right. rather than <laughs> um, actually playing. There's got to be a role for Russell Crowe. Crow and possibly Jeremy Irons also. Um, Keira Knightley is Isabella of Angoulême, so this sort of waif-like figure who you know, has to, isn't allowed to see her children that often ends up going off to France in 1217, never to return. Mm. Alan Rickman, yes, obviously. Alan Rickman, yes. Meryl Streep. Yes. We've all got to find Meryl somewhere. Meryl Streep plays Nicola de la Haye, Constable of Lincoln, Sheriff of Lincolnshire. I think the young gentleman at the front here. Jeremy Irons. Or Robert De Niro. Or Robert De Niro, yes. Robert De Niro, yes. I was thinking of Jeremy Irons as well. But I think that Ben Miller would be good as King John. But anyway... um. I was wondering if was Magna Carta, although it was quite significant during the early part of Henry III's reign, was, what would you say was um, 
was sort of one of its most significant uses um, during the latter part of the 13th century. Um, I think Paul's better at qualifying. Yeah, Paul. <laughs> In the second latter part of the 13th century, it right. is clearly still part of the current language of politics. There are issues raised by it, particularly issues about consent to taxation, about taking of property without consent and without mm. adequate compensation that are really still very, very live issues. And towards the end of the 13th century, you also get quite a lot of legislation that is specifically building on Magna Carta. Um, taking it further, giving it teeth, giving a much more specific meaning to <coughs> fairly vague clauses. And you, you're actually getting this early, you're getting it already in the 1230s, but there's a particularly vigorous um, period of doing this in the late 13th, very early 14th century. And it's part mm -hmm. of what takes Magna Carta forward. Um, there are changes to Magna Carta in 12, 16, 12, 17, 12, 25, and then they just go on reissuing it with sometimes um, quite significant individual changes that don't look as though they were necessarily able to argue about that. What more importantly happens is that they issue other legislation that clearly starts from Magna Carta and builds on it and they don't incorporate it into a revised reissue of Magna Carta. They let it stand alone, but you can only really understand what that legislation is about if you read it in the context of the Magna Carta clause from which it started. And, and one of the very important things that that does, I don't want to go on too long, one of the very important things that that does is to begin the general uh, work, general process of bringing Magna Carta into something that is enforceable against the king, not directly mm. against the king, but against the king's officials. Mm. Um, allowing people to sue the king's officials, even when they're directly in the king's service, um, mm. is something that begins really in the later 13th, early 14th century. It hasn't been possible up to that stage. And that's a long-term change that actually, for the first time, begins to make the king's officials responsible at law for some of the actions that they take in the king's name. And I think that's a very important change. And it's a change that's associated particularly in the 1290s with taxation. See, that a large part of the use of Magna Carta in the 1290s is about this business of taxation and representation, consent to tax. And even today, if you look at the way in which peoples interact with government, if you think of what's going on in Greece or indeed what's going on in Germany, it's still taxation that is very often the chief point of contact between people and governors. I think we had a question just behind you, Paul. I want to know what kind of impact uh, the Magna Carta have on the legal system in Asian countries. We know the countries like Canada, America, and Australia, I mean, the legal system is very similar with that in the UK. But the, the legal system in Asian countries is different from the European legal system. So I want to know the impact 
the Magna Carta have on the legal system in the Asian countries? I'm the nearest to a person who can answer that. So, <laughs> um, the quick answer is that it's, it's mediated through various intermediate stages, through other documents, the documents like the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which in turn, if you go back, owes something to uh, declarations of rights, bills of rights, to the American um, amendments, the Bill of Rights amendments which in turn come out of the interpretation of the clauses of Magna Carta. So um, to say that you can read all of this back into Magna Carta is clearly wrong, but it's, it's a part of the historical process of interpreting, reinterpreting in each generation of the meaning of Magna Carta that then, as I say, gets transformed into... Um, Bills of Rights, the American uh, uh, Bill of Rights, and then the <clears throat> French Revolution and its uh, views of rights, which turn into a kind of universal language of rights. Um, and that, I think, is probably the way in which Magna Carta influences even the Asian countries that don't have any direct heritage of um, common law. Notice the mediation there, because England, there are tricky aspects to this celebration of Magna Carta this year, but England was a colonial power, and it had an empire, and the people who lived under that empire didn't necessarily look upon English law as a terribly good thing. So it's much easier to receive your ideas of rights from the people who've rebelled against an imperial power even if in the eyes of some they might now today be an imperial power, <laughs> than it is to receive them from an imperial power ruled by a king with bishops and all those other things. We had a question from Adrian here, and then we'll come to back. My question is about um, the international, contemporary international influences upon Magna Carta. Because if I remember correctly, the kings of Portugal issued a, a, a declaration, not declaration of rights, but you know, a charter of rights, counter deserted. Of course, there's Henry I's um, coronation oath and, and, and um, rights. So I was wondering if the project has come across, I could say something about the, the influences that they've come across. Sorry, say that again, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Continental, continental influences, influences on the charter. Yes. Oh, continental influences. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that is a fascinating thing. And Nick has, uh, really ought to be answering questions more than me. But the, um, I mean, I think the charter does grow out of a much wider European culture. Uh, going back, of course, I've talked about before that, uh, you know, Ginty Nelson's article on bad kingship under the Carolingians, if you actually swap Charles the Bald for King John, I mean, the article could actually be written about King John rather than about the Carolingians. And then I think in the 12th century, I think there were huge developments in European learning, um, the study of theology, canon law, Roman law, which mm. means that, you know, someone like King John is judged by much more severe standards than Henry I was earlier. And, of course, that, that wider European... Uh, context feeds into other European charters, as you rightly say. Uh, King Pedro's Charter for Catalonia, the Simon de Montfort's amazing um, charters for the state he was founding after the Albigensian uh, Crusade, and of course Spanish jurisprudence. All of these things have very close parallels to 
Magna Carta. I mean, I think what was unique about Magna Carta was to some extent the detail in it, but also just because it becomes much more famous than any of the other charters, and that's the function of later English and indeed imperial uh, history. So it's a function of the rebellion of the 17th century mm. by the barons against the king, and they use Magna Carta. Yeah. And, and that's it, how it feeds in, of course, into mm. the, into the uh, America, yeah. because the parliamentary opposition, of course, to Cromwell ha had huge con uh, uh, connections with what's going on in, in, in America, mm. and that's how the two go together. There's a gentleman at the back behind you, Paul. Uh, yeah, um, my understanding is that it, it was unique that, um, you know, the series of Magna Cartas from 1215 were unique. Uh, but you, so you've just explained, I'm trying to see it as a, a totally English phenomena and why in England does it say something about the English? Are they more sensitive about justice or things like that? But you, you've, you've given it a European context there which then places it as a, a step along, a, you know, a development of um, of uh, justice and uh, human rights, I suppose. Or, or, or was, or do you feel there was something specifically about England, the English? I think it's a wonderful myth. So it's a myth, and it's very important because it's why we behave the way we do, and we try to uphold these things. But if you're Irish or you're Jamaican, or you're Indian, or you're many other things, then you're going to have a rather different version of the English and liberty. And liberty is going to be something against which you have to fight the English. So I, I, I am very, very wary of that heritage version of Magna Carta that says we've all been perfect since 1215. Around about June 1215, the English became top nation, and we've been there ever since. And there is a strong element to the way that it's been marketed this year. And that is an entirely anachronistic, entirely absurd version of Magna Carta. Can I add something a little bit on the other side of that particular argument? And that is to say that there is a reason why Magna Carta survives when some of the other charters don't. And that has something to do with the centralisation of justice, centralisation mm. of state in England in the 13th century, which embeds Magna Carta in legal culture, in political culture, in a way that doesn't, for the most part, happen in other countries that have otherwise, on the face of it, quite similar charges. Is, is Magna Carta more widely publicised in England in the 13th century than other charters are publicised in their respective kingdoms, through the distribution of through the bishops and the sheriffs? I suppose everything is, because the documentation for England is so much richer than it is for mm. other countries. But that's in part a function of the weakness of English kingship, that mm. English kings really do have to negotiate tax. Mm. That's King John. you, David. <laughs> I won't take him anywhere. He wants to know whether you've got any money. <laughs> One other thing that arises that comes to mind. The other great advantage of England is that it is an Ireland. Mm. Now, in the 13th century, that means that the kings have to go to war against the Scots and the Welsh and so on, and there is a su succession of wars. But unlike those continental powers that acquire charters that constantly have to pay the costs of war and autocracies about the only way you can actually go about organizing mm. all of that. 
Uh, the English don't have to do that. So that there are there are peculiarities about the English people as an island people that shouldn't be ignored. And the fact that we were a nation state, not every yep. country in Europe at that time was that. Exactly. Just a quick word about the sort of forest charters. Were they always issued with the Magna Carta? And who paid for them? Well, no one really paid for the forest charter. I mean, we all paid for them by granting taxes. So the 1225 charters, which are the final definitive version, I mean, they were paid for, and that's why they had the status, because they weren't coerced out of the king. They were paid for by a grant of taxation. And then the 1237 ones were also, the confirmation in 1237, um, when the king was of full age, was paid for by another tax. So in a sense, everyone pays for them. And that's a good thing, because it means it's a freely given grant of the king and not the product of war. But you're right. I mean, all subsequent kings confirmed the charters of 1225, the charters of 1225, so that the Magna Carta and the Forest Charter always thereafter march together. And Nick, have you found any more forest charters? I think you have. Lots, lots and lots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally ignored. Um, four or five in the last two or three years. So they, they do go with Magna Carta. And I don't think that the Forest Charter is issued apart from Magna Carta at any point. It's probably made in a smaller number of countries because copies only go to the forest counties. Yeah, yeah. You say that, Paul, but in fact, Sandwich has a forest charter, and mm. the Sank Ports are in Kent, which has no yes, forest. Yes, yeah. So I suspect, no, it was a sort of well, you just send them out. You know, um, you get a free one with every night. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you know. want the Sunday supplement or the motoring supplement, you get it anyway. Forgive my coming back with a second version of my final question from last time. Could you say more about the importance of the 1216 charter issued, in, as I understand it, in Bristol? And where and what is the importance of the 1217 Magna Carta? Please. Well, the 1216 charter was obviously vital because... Um, the chain, it's different from the 1215 charter. It doesn't have the 25 committee. It drops the 25 barons, it drops lots of other things. And none of those things were ever restored. And so the changes made in the 1216 charter are, are, are for thereafter, for eternity. And so in that sense, it sets the, you know, it sets the, the, the future. Um, and if there had been no decision to have the 1216 charter, that probably would have been it, as I said before. So it is very, very important. And um, I think you will do very well with your opera um, concert. Uh, concert. Music from the time and inspired. In celebration of it, I think, more powerfully. But it is a balladly an intro. Yeah. It says various things that are doubtful mm. and need more discussion. We are putting aside for future decision. And the 1217 Charter takes up that and... Um, it's a much more definitive issue than the Yeah, just to add to that, the 1216 charter is very little known, and the, uh, there's only one copy of it 
in English material that I know of, and that's in a York, in York Minster cartridges of the 14th century. So it's very, very little known. It was very rarely copied in the in, in the 13th century, and I suspect very few of them actually were sort of got across because of the very difficult situation at, at the time. And where's 1217 then? Well, there are lots of 1217 copies, and there are. There's only one original, isn't there? 1216. Mm, Whereas there are four uh, of 1217, and lots and lots of copies of 1217, and hardly any, as I said, only one copy surviving uh, at the moment. I dare say more may be discovered than 1216. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Thank you. Why do we have crown immunity? Well, with all, with the, with everybody being, uh, sorry, with everybody being uh, subject to the law, mm. and the the uh, the crown's officers, how does crown immunity today um, survive? That you cannot sue the queen. Uh, you, but you can well, but we 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 know that the crown officers. Are subject to the law. So how do those two... That's, that's very much what Paul was saying, so that you yeah. can actually sue the Crown officers, or at least mm. you can begin yeah. to, even in the 13th century, but you cannot sue the head of state. And think of the terminology, think of the metaphor there. They are the head of the state. And the rest of us are the limbs and the fingers mm. and the toes. Some of us are the big toe of mm. the state. And that's the way that they conceive of government in the, in the 13th century. That if you have a sovereign power, you, you cannot actually have the members revolting against it. So the, the crown is immune, is immune to that extent. From It's immune to an ordinary legal suit against mm. itself in the 13th century. But it is generally possible by way of petition, by a written request, yep. to be admitted to make the kind of claim against the Crown that you would make against a private individual. But the Crown then enjoys various additional privileges in answering any litigation you have, including the ability to change the kind of answer they're giving, uh, including the fact that time never runs against the, the Crown. And this is part of the common intellectual heritage mm -hmm. taken over from um, the learned law. Um, the view of the prerogatives of the crown isn't something distinctive in English. It's a general European mm. phenomenon derived ultimately, I think, from Roman law. Mm. Uh, it's but, part of the, what we took over from Roman law mm. that we might perhaps have done rather better not to. And it's actually there in Magna Carta. So it's often said Magna Carta places the crown under the rule of law. But of course, it doesn't entirely, because even those iconic clauses, like Clause 39, that state that judgment must be lawful by the lawful judgment of your peers and or by the law of the land. Well, who is to say what is the lawful judgment of your peers? So it, it, there's always got to be a defining sovereign power that actually establishes at the end of the day what is and is not just. We just have time for one or two more questions before we carry on in this section with a, a glass of wine. There's a gentleman just here, Paul, to, yep, to write who is next. Thank you. So when we think about... <clears throat> Leave your hand down the uh, microphone. When we think about the civil wars of the 17th century, 
um, we think that increased taxation was something good. It allowed the state to gather more revenues, to get a powerful army and get ahead relative to other European nations. And in fact, what may have gone terribly wrong with countries like Poland in the early modern period, or maybe Italy or Germany for that matter, why not Ancien Regime France, was that the state was too decentralized, so it couldn't really do anything because it didn't have any revenues. Okay. So in light of that, it might have actually been positive that King John was trying to get more revenues, right? Well, the Scots, the Scots and the well, of course, but um, in in the general historiography, Edward the First is seen as a good king. Is he not? Really? No, no, I don't think. Like Michael Prestwich, where he is. <laughs> 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 but like most biographers, he tends to be a bit captured by the subject. Yeah. I don't think um, Michael was actually. I, I think that's uh, that's wrong. I mean, I think Michael is a very, very measured and for some ways rather critical appraisal. But, I mean, obviously, John's achievement in tripling his revenues was absolutely mm. extraordinary and fits mm. in exactly with what um, Louise said about, mm. you know, his, his ability. Um, clearly, John was an amazingly hands-on monarch. Mm. And I think one of the most remarkable things which Nick has brought out and other people writing about John this year brought out is the tremendous grasp you get of what he was like from the material here. Mm. Particularly from the Chancery roles, you know, and mm. John's hands-on approach and the way he saw around all the angles of the problem in these extraordinary letters that he was issuing, and they are not not quite unique. I mean, you get similar letters with Henry the Third, and to some extent Edward the First, but of course that's why the 13th century is so wonderful, and why it's far better to be a 13th century historian than any later. Chancery roles of the 14th or 15th. And just to follow up on that, if you look in the Curia Regis roles, you sometimes find evidence of the king's personal intervention in tiddly little cases. Um, there's a nice case involving a widow who was suing William de Mowbray for her dower in Masham, where the king personally intervenes and tells Geoffrey Fitzpeter that she's to have her dower from a particular portion of land but she's not to have any more from the rest of William de Mowbray's fee. And then there's a little note from the court clerk saying, basically, and the widow decided to bring suits against other people, you know, um, because she did not wish to go against the king. So he, he really was a man with an eye for detail, frighteningly so. It's perhaps worth, if I can add briefly, having that John, after 1204, had only England and Ireland to play with. His brother and his father had had a much wider territories. Um, John's ability to spend all that concentration on uh, England um, must be in part related to that, the kind of expectations of the amount of effort and time. Um, he was able to do it in a way that his predecessors had not. We'll just have one last question from the lady here, and then we'll, we'll move over to discussion. Of the, is that right? Thanks. We'll move uh, over to have discussions over a glass of wine after that. 
We've spoken a lot about other reissues of Magna Carta. I was wondering if you could comment on the relationship between Magna Carta and the provisions of Oxford. Um, I'd say that the major, major difference between the provisions of Oxford and Magna Carta was that the provisions of Oxford took power from the king's hands and in, were intended to do so on a semi-permanent or permanent basis. Now, Magna Carta 1215 had that security clause where if the king broke the charter, they would seize his castles and lands and possessions. That, charter, that clause was dropped in later issues, um, and the, sentence, uh, the charter was to be enforced by uh, religious sanctions. The provisions of Oxford intended to take all the possibility of doing wrong out of the king's hands and have government decided by a council of his subjects, and that was a major difference and completely radical. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government License.